because I believe education is a public good for the whole community, not just the benefit of the individual. A student protest against government higher education proposals swept through London last Wednesday. We'll be talking to a member of the government whose department produced the white paper. Also on today's programme. You must know that the resignation of Berlusconi is not the solution in itself. It's an important step, but it doesn't suffice. Will Silvio Berlusconi's resignation bring the Eurozone back from the brink? We'll be talking to a professor of European Studies from King's. But first, Freya has a summary of this week's main news. Italian PM Silvio Berlusconi gave in his resignation over the weekend after tough financial reforms were rushed through the necessary bodies. Italy are in dire straits as a result of the Eurozone crisis and some say they are a major cause of it. Berlusconi is charged with not having responded quickly or strongly enough in implementing measures to reduce the country's deficit, for which he has strongly been reprimanded by leaders of other EU countries, least of all Nicolas Sarkozy of France and Angela Merkel of Germany. Mario Monti, a well-known technocrat who has previously been heavily involved in representing Italy in Brussels, was asked on Sunday to form a government. Though he was not elected, he is now Prime Minister of Italy and will possibly remain in place until March 2013. As a well-versed economist, some say he is the antidote to Italy's money woes, but Berlusconi's party still holds a majority in the Italian parliament, so only time will tell. The story continues this week in Syria, with President Assad's regime coming under strong criticism for its crackdown on protesters over the past months from the Arab League, resulting in its suspension from the league itself. Qatar and Saudi Arabia were amongst the countries who voted for their suspension, which makes it highly likely that the Arab League will now refer the case to the UN Security Council. Just this morning, King Abdullah of Jordan has called on Assad to step down in an interview with the BBC, saying that's what he would do were he in his shoes. Syria has been the focus of strong criticism from the international community following what many have termed a brutal clampdown on protesters and many rumours of human rights abuses. Pro-Assad supporters attacked the embassies of France, Qatar, Saudi Arabia and Turkey on Saturday, which the regime has been quick to apologise for, but more violence seems to be expected over the coming weeks with interventions from outside bodies not outruled. The Home Secretary, Theresa May, has been in the spotlight over the last week after it having emerged that controls were relaxed on the country's borders last summer, meaning that full checks weren't in place and that therefore criminals and terrorists could have made their way into the country unchecked. The head of the UK border force, Brodie Clark, resigned last week after having been suspended by the Home Secretary, though he denies any wrongdoing, stating that he merely followed orders from above. It is his word against Mays as she responded by saying that the border force acted to relax controls without her say-so. However, this will be examined next week and her job is still very much hanged in the balance. Last week, approximately 10,000 protesters took the streets of London to campaign against David Willett's white paper and the proposed changes to the higher education system in England. Willett's paper stated aim is to put students at the heart of the system, but many have suggested that this really equates to privatisation of the system, with many still angry about the rise of the level of tuition fees and cuts to education funding made over the last year. The police were out in force, with extra personnel drafted in from outside London to keep any trouble at bay. However, the march passed off peacefully. James Murdoch was once again in front of the Commons Culture Select Committee last week, giving evidence about his time at the head of News International, when the practice of hacking and other ethically questionable methods were supposedly rife in the news of the world. Sky News have blamed a hacker for the mistaken tweet, that he had been arrested, which sent ripples through those following the story. 
however no such arrest took place. In Murdoch's second questioning by the committee, he reiterated that he had been left in the dark about the practices being used by his employees to obtain stories, but the committee member, Tom Watson, commented about him behaving like a mafia boss, which seemed to hit a lot of the headlines the following day. Perhaps the most confusing thing to come out of the meeting was Murdoch's undermining of Tom Crone, an ex-employee of the News of the World, whose testimony suggested that Murdoch had known about what was going on all along at the News of the World, though in a statement, Crone called Murdoch disingenuous at best. The Right Honourable Lord Justice Laverson is beginning an investigation into the practice of the British press. The BBC Trust has recommended that no controls be put on the editorial of newspapers, but Leveson has already commented that the victimisation of witnesses who speak up against intrusion of the press into their private lives is something that will not be tolerated in the future. Last week, students in London were out in their masses again to protest against the rise in tuition fees and against the government's higher education white paper. Joining me in the studio is Nicky Morgan, a Conservative MP and Parliamentary Private Secretary to David Willits, the Universities and Science Minister. Nicky Morgan, do you think the protesters had a point when they demonstrated on Wednesday? Well, they certainly had a point because they were there to express their opinions and their concerns mm-hmm. about the policy. Uh, and I don't think any uh, government, uh, British government, would be um, mad enough to say people cannot protest or have opinions contrary. Uh, to, uh, to government policy um, and clearly there is going to be a, a level of concern about the new system uh, the position it puts universities in I know universities, it's a lot of changes for everybody uh, But do so you think they are right in what they're saying? Do you think they have a point in that they are um, a lot of them genuinely worried about what this means in terms of privatisation and what this means in terms of access for people, social mobility. Do you think they have a point there? I don't think they have a point in terms of um, you know, privatisation or, um, I mean, I think they have a, uh, there is obviously a legitimate concern about what the impact of higher fees um, and the other proposals in the white paper, uh, like uh, the AAB proposals and core and margin, are going to mean in terms of access uh, and social mobility. Actually, I think the more you delve down into the, to the details, um, um, then actually those those concerns can be allayed. Uh, and I think what they did do is do us you know, all a favour in terms of they bring the issue back to the fore and it means that we can all discuss it. The paper proposes privately funded um, places from charities and companies and things like that. And it's all very well at the moment now, you saying that this will be strictly regulated, we'll make sure you know there's no underhand dealings or anything like that. But what's not to say sort of 10, 15 years down the line, this all goes to pot? But you could say that about, about any policy. I mean, the point is actually we, we want the, the most able people, the people for whom university is absolutely the right thing to get to university. And it may very well be that actually uh, places sponsored by charities, um, but more importantly, I think sponsored by business, because businesses are really keen to do their play their part in making sure that, that, that students get access to, to education and they then get the best possible graduates to employ. But you say best possible graduates, but surely, you know, going back to Nick Clegg with terms of work experience, daddy's friend on the golf course course oh daddy's friend can get you a place at university now it seems well no I don't think so because I think um, talking to you for example obviously I'm as well as being David's PPS I'm also MP for Loughborough and at Loughborough we have a course uh, that's sponsored by Balfour Beattie um, and uh, the students on it get uh, some help I think with their their fees and, and you know, some grants but the other thing they get is obviously access to working for Balfour Beattie during the holidays um, and um, those students have, have got those places through interview and through impressing Balfour Beattie uh, not because somebody somebody you know, knew somebody else um, and I think actually the, the trouble with arguments um, like the ones you know, you're running and the people last week is it actually it's rather disingenuous. It kind of implies that actually people at universities, you know, it's open, places are open for the highest bidder. And I don't think any university nor any school operates in that way. Last year's protests saw 
tremendous amounts of violence, damage. I'm sure you possibly saw um, a lot of windows got smashed at Millbank <laughs> and that kind of thing. Um, do you think um, the police response this time, they got it right? Well, they got it right in the sense that there was very limited uh, problems and people were obviously able to protest peacefully. Um, I think we all know, uh, I know students from Loughborough on the protest last year, it was a very minority of people, hardcore, who were intent on damage. Um, and um, I felt that obviously that obscured the message of the of the masses and the, t- the point they were trying to trying to make. I think the police, not just with this protest, but with any protest at the moment, are just not going to take um, a- any risks. After the trouble we saw in the summer, uh, we know that it, it doesn't take much for certain people to hijack any form of legitimate protest and turn it to criminal ends. But surely um, threatening people with rubber bullets which have in the past killed people. Um, do you think that was not a bit too much for a student protest? Well, as I say, the, the trouble is um, it was more, I suspect, a warning not to the students, but more to, to any criminal elements who might decide they're going to try and hijack this. Um, and we, you know, we've seen that, that trouble over the summer, and I think anybody who lived through that, uh, fortunately in Leicestershire, you know, we pretty much escaped. Um, but anyone particularly in London who lived through that just wants to know the police are going to issue a tough response. Um, so, you know, I think at the end of the day people were able to, to protest, uh, they were able to make their point, uh, and you know, it all passed off pretty pretty peacefully. And so from the police point of view, I thought that's a success. And also from the students' point of view, they made their point. Hmm. Um, now, if, just uh, briefly, if we can move to the um, Occupy protest, the mm. camps outside St Paul's just down the road from here. Um, is this the big society in action? <laughs> well, I suppose it's two people taking taking things into their into their own hands. Um, I mean, the big society is partly obviously about delivery of government services uh, by the best possible, uh, most effective means closest to people. And I'm not entirely sure I'd say that Occupy London are, are, are doing that. But what they are doing is making their point. The difficulty is, speaking as a Christian, it's um, what, what I don't want to see is people who would normally use St Paul's for you know worship mm. and for a, you know a peaceful time not being able to to get in. But is it almost sort of going to be never ending do you foresee because what they're essentially asking for is a complete overhaul of life as we know it capitalism the basis on which we all live you know that's never going to get delivered especially not under a conservative government <laughs> well i think yeah i mean david cameron you know made made clear that he had some sympathy with i think those archbishop of canterbury had said that the financial system needs to change i think we all know that the system's got to change i think all of us who go into to you know whether it's protesting going to politics we all want to change the world the question is as you say how far we can actually do that um and i think that probably they will get somewhere but they won't get you're right as far as their their ultimate goals hmm. nikki morgan thank you very much my pleasure On Saturday evening, the news broke that Silvio Berlusconi had resigned as Prime Minister as the lower house of the Italian parliament voted through new austerity measures. Is this the vital tonic the Eurozone needs, or is it still sinking slowly into the abyss? Well, joining me now to shed some light on the situation is Professor Ramon Pacheco-Pardo from the Department of European and International Studies at KCL. Um, So, Professor, um, Italy's flamboyant spender, Berlusconi, is gone. The more austere Mr Monti is now at the helm. Is that it? Crisis averted? Well, uh, I don't think so, to be completely honest. Uh, markets didn't have confidence on Berlusconi, that's for sure, but the Italian economy has been suffering for 20, 30 years now. And that's not only because of Berlusconi and the previous governments, the Italian com- economy was already sinking. So the crisis has exacerbated this. Um, Mario Monti has the advantage that has a lot of credibility, but on the other hand, uh, he won't be there for long. Uh, that's what we think, because uh, obviously he hasn't been elected, so at some point there will be elections. And then what will happen afterwards, we don't know, because it might well happen that someone from the same party as Berlusconi will mm. uh, come into power and we'll have the, the crisis will begin again. Mm. Well, this morning, only this morning, Italy sold 3 billion euros of bonds um, 
uh, Eurozone record yield of 6.29%. Um, can you foresee Italy surviving this while still in the Euro? Yes, Italy can. Uh, it has been reinventing itself uh, before. In the 1980s it had to and it did it more or less successfully. In the 1990s, even though I said that Italy has been in crisis for 20-30 years, in the 1990s it seemed that Italy would never join the Euro, actually it did join the Euro in the end. So uh, Italians themselves, uh, they have companies, uh, they have economies, uh, the population itself, the workforce actually is capable of uh, pulling, this, uh, pulling this out and making Italy a competitive economy again. The major problem with Italy is, uh, is politics. And uh, if politics uh, are not uh, stabilized in the near future, then we'll have this ongoing crisis, regardless of Italy remaining in the euro or not. Uh, but at this point, I think Italy can actually solve its problems uh, being in the euro. Mm. But is it a big problem, it's sort of a very simple fact, that in countries such as Greece and Italy, people are just not paying tax? You know, the government is not trying to collect it. In, you know, in Greece, it's estimated that $30 billion dollars worth of tax goes unpaid each year sorry such you hear stories of like the subway in athens it's on a honesty kind of thing you pay if you want to surely fundamental reforms have got to come in place to sort this out yes uh, what do we have to take into account is that both in italy and, uh, and greece and other countries uh, it's not that people don't pay taxes because they don't want to pay taxes i mean this is only part of the equation but there's this belief that governments are going to misspend any revenue they get from from taxation so people basically citizens don't want don't want to give their money to a government that they think is not providing them with any benefits in return but surely that's the kind of thing that you do at the ballot box in the, imagine if this country if you sort of you didn't support the government you just go i'm not going to pay tax that would never stand here hmm. yeah I, I, absolutely that's uh, that, that's right but then on the other hand you have to take into account that we're thinking about uh, it is uh, uh, the same political system but it's a different kind of uh, political class that we have in other countries. And in other countries, politicians do have careers in politics for 30, 40, even 50 years. And then um, their associates, their friends, even their families, such as the case uh, that we have seen in Greece with, uh, with Papandreou, uh, they have been in politics for long periods of time. So it's a different type of political class that perhaps in the UK and other countries we are not used to. Uh, mm. because of the simple fact that politics is not a career as it is in other countries, so people come and go from the private sector, for example. Mm. Um, do you think that if the um, if the Eurozone is going to recover, it needs to be tighter, it needs to... Fiscal union is looking at the way it's going to be. And if so, where does that leave the UK in that? I, I think the UK... Uh, first of all, um, it has done well to retain its own currency because the pound is a well-recognised currency all around the world. So the UK benefited from not being part of the euro. But I think for the UK, in the UK, uh, a stronger euro would be a tremendous benefit. Because if we, we go back to the 1990s when the, the euro wasn't a, an account currency, uh, the UK had to trade with different countries using pounds or using the currency of that country. And that actually increased costs. So costs have been reduced because UK companies today, and uh, obviously uh, UK, um, UK business people, when they go to the European Union, they have a single currency they can use. Does this say a lot of money to them? Actually, it increases revenue at the end of the day. Hmm. And finally, um, now it's seeming that many firms, banks, governments, countries are now looking past the collapse of the euro. They're now putting the groundwork in, um, in terms of plans um, to put themselves in the best position in a post-euro um, Europe. Um, Douglas Alexander in The Guardian this morning is now saying that we should pull back from Europe and make better ties just, just with Germany. Uh, what do you make of that? Uh, first of all, I don't think 
the euro will completely disappear. One or two countries might uh, stop being members of the eurozone, remain the euro in the European Union, but not members of the eurozone. But I don't think the euro uh, as a currency will disappear. But it's good to have these plans. It is good to have these plans because in case this actually happens, uh, as you said before, the UK should focus on particular countries. Uh, I don't think in this case it would be good to focus only on Germany because the, the UK has a competitive advantage in a number of um, services, for example, financial services that are required by all European countries, not only Germany. And actually you could argue that countries in Southern Europe, for example, require much more foreign expertise in this field than, than German uh, so companies, for example. So you, you say that the um, that you think the euro will survive this, mm-hmm. there will be a euro in some, for, um, some form. Um, what countries do you think will drop out? Italy, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, perhaps? Uh, I don't think uh, many countries will drop out in the end. If any country drops out, I think it's going to be only Greece. Mm-hmm. And I think Greece would actually recover from the crisis more quickly if it didn't have the euro. Mm. But other countries... You in have terms to of what being able to devalue. Exactly. And, yeah. But we also have to take into account, uh, I will finish with this, um, that um, other countries, th- for other countries, this is not only an economic matter, this is also a political matter. Mm. Dr. Ramon Pacheco-Pilo, thank you very much. Thanks to you. Just before we go, Freya has a summary of this week's main news. Italian PM Silvio Berlusconi gave in his resignation over the weekend after tough financial reforms were rushed through the necessary bodies. The story continues this week in Syria, with President Assad's regime coming under strong criticism for its crackdown on protesters over the past months from the Arab League, resulting in its full suspension from the League. The Home Secretary, Theresa May, has been in the spotlight over the last week after it having emerged that controls were relaxed on the country's borders last summer, meaning that the full checks weren't in place on immigrants. Last week, approximately 10,000 protesters took to the streets of London to campaign against David Willett's white paper and the proposed changes to the higher education system in England. James Murdoch was once again in front of the Commons Culture Select Committee last week, giving evidence about his time at the head of News International when the practice of hacking and other ethically questionable methods were supposedly rife in the news of the world. That's all we have time for. Big thank you to my guests, Nikki Morgan MP and Professor Ramon Pacheco Pardo. If you want to get in touch, you can visit our website, kclradio.co.uk, or you can tweet me at LukeJones03. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a fortnight. <laughs>